Today's scripture comes from the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 to chapter 6, verse 5. Listen now for the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So, uh, welcome. We are continuing our series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we've done love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And today we have gentleness, and next week we'll finish um, with self-control. So let's let's, uh, pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for your word. And... God, we want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We want to be a people whose life together is exemplified by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do your work in us and help us to be fruitful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today's fruit is gentleness. I suspect that this is the least Pray for fruit on the list. Uh, Over the years, I know at least in my prayers for my family and for the church, for myself, I have often asked to have more love and joy and peace for these qualities to overflow in my life. I have prayed for patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness to characterize our life together as a church. 
I have prayed for self-control repeatedly, as you know, in regard to potato chips. By the way, a shout out to Isaac, in case you're listening, who brought me a bag of potato chips all the way from Syracuse. We've taught him well. Um, But I don't recall wanting or praying for an extra dose of gentleness. I do recall when our children were very young, and at least one of them had a tendency to be very destructive with his or her toys, and would sometimes fight and bite, that we'd tell her, or him, (laughs) to be gentle. Be gentle. But otherwise, I don't know that I've actually thought much about gentleness, and it's certainly the first time that I'm preaching on the topic of gentleness. Now, the word gentleness doesn't sound as bad as meekness, which is the way I learn the fruit of the Spirit growing up, because the churches I grew up only used the King James Version of the Bible, and so I learned the fruit of the Spirit as in this way. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That's the word for patience, to suffer long. Gentleness, they switched out kindness with gentleness. Goodness, faith, not faithfulness, which I talked about last time. Meekness, our word today for gentleness, and temperance, or self-control. That's the way I learned it. And uh, so, you know, the thing about language is that, you know, the meaning of words is is constantly changing, and so we have to kind of go back and look at old dictionaries to see what words might have meant in the, you know, the 1600s when the word meekness was used, right? So, way back when, maybe not quite as far back as King James, the word meekness meant something like being able to endure injury and insult with patience and without resentment. So that's much more positive than the way we kind of think about the word meekness today. Because today, meekness is almost entirely seen in a negative light. Who here has prayed for meekness for themselves or for their children? Anybody want more of meekness, 30, 60, 100-fold? Lord, help me to be more meek, to be meeker, to be meek as a mouse, a pushover, a wet noodle, mild-mannered, unassuming, docile, wimpy, soft, easily dominated, unambitious, lacking initiative, forgettable, weak, bland, nice. Is that what it means to be gentle or meek? And if so, why would anybody want that? How many of you have ever put meek on your resume? Or your college application? Or how about in a job interview? Tell us about yourself. Well, my strongest trait is I'm meek. Or about how about telling us about your parents, about your new boyfriend? Oh, he's fantastic. He's so meek. No, we don't want that. We don't want meekness. We want to present at least a facade of strength and power. We teach our kids to be assertive, to speak up for themselves, to be aggressive even, to be ambitious, to dominate. Don't let anyone push you around. And it's not just the world telling us this, in a, that it's a dog-eat-dog world. Even as Christians, we talk about strength, about Christian warfare, to be a strong soldier for Christ, to have passion and zeal for the house of the Lord. For men, gentleness and meekness seem to go against the very fiber of our being. It sounds so unmanly. 
And yet here it is. And so even though we might think of meekness as weakness, it is something that is supposed to characterize the Christian life. James 1.21 tells us that we are to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness or gentleness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter 3.15 teaches us that we are to be prepared to make a defense of our faith but to do it with gentleness and respect. In the letter to the Ephesians, after spending three chapters explaining the work of God in Christ, Paul says now in the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all gentleness. Right? We expect him after all this like to walk in a manner worthy, to be, to be steadfast, to be faithful, to be strong. But he says, no, with, with all humility and gentleness. The proper response of what, to what God has done for us is to live in a manner worthy of our calling and that is to walk with all gentleness. And in Paul's letter to the, to the contentious Corinthians, he again similarly entreats them with the gentleness of Christ and asks rhetorically whether he should come to them with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness. We are to respond to one another with gentleness. We are called to gentleness as a way of life. So we need to do a little word study on gentleness. There are several different words in Greek that can get translated as gentleness, but the word that Paul uses in the fruit of the Spirit twice here, uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, as well as in verse uh, chapter 6-1, is prautes, and it carries a meaning of gentleness that we don't have in the English word gentleness. Now, to be sure, gentleness is what you kind of think of it's often associated in the scriptures with the word humbleness or with humility. Um, again, that's also another idea that our sort of uh, self-promoting culture doesn't <clears throat> really value. But So when Jesus says things like, blessed are the meek, blessed are the proudest, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, the weak, really, right? For they shall inherit the earth. He's quoting Psalm 37, and he's talking about those who are oppressed, those who have you know, who are being stepped on, those who are being, you know, um, exploited, and they're seeing the, the, uh, the prosperity of the wicked, and, and they are to be blessed because they will, Jesus says, inherit the earth. They're blessed, um, by the way, they're blessed because they're the meek ones. It, it's plural there. Because they, as a community, right, suffer together. And they're going to be blessed because they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. They know that they do not need to be aggressive. They need not push their way. They are going to inherit, not achieve, not acquire by conquering, but they are going to inherit the earth in a very different kind of way. And so it describes those who are not proud, those who are not trying to make it on their own for themselves, but they acknowledge God's authority and submit themselves to the will of God. These are the ones who are the meek, the gentle, and these are the ones who Jesus says, you will be blessed, or you are blessed. That's one way of thinking about gentleness. But there is another important sense in which the Greeks understood gentleness, uh, which is absent, I think, in our English understanding of gentleness. We tend to contrast um, 
virtue with vice as polar opposites, right? We think of, you know, love and hate. We think of um, kindness and cruelty. So we think of the, the fruit of the Spirit as these virtues at one end as opposed to the list of vices that Paul has right before the fruit of the Spirit at the other end. But for the Greeks, they saw virtue not at one end as opposed to vice, but as the golden mean between two vices. You with me? So they saw gentleness, not the opposite of, say, um, viciousness, but they saw gentleness as the mean or, you know, the, uh, the balance between uncontrollable rage at one end and indifference at the other end. That's gentleness. It's not just like sort of being soft. It's this, it's knowing when to be angry, with whom you should be angry, and in what measure you need to be angry. That's gentleness. Now, that's very different from the way we think about gentleness, isn't it? But that's the way they talked about gentleness. It's power under control. It's someone who is able to unleash their anger at the right time, at the right person, in the right measure. So, you know, if you see injustice, if you see the poor being exploited, if you see the vulnerable being trampled upon, you should get angry. Right? I think, I think we, we fail at this end, that we don't get angry enough. Again, it's not the person who gets angry at, you know, slight insults or things, you know, personal attacks. But when we see others being crushed, the gentle person responds to that with anger. That's also gentleness. That's the virtue of gentleness. It's also the word that the Greeks use to talk about an animal which has been domesticated. Now again, when we think of domesticated, we think that's, that's, that's a weakness. But it's not. That's not the way they thought of it. A horse that has been tamed or had been gentled is just as strong. But their power is now under control and can be applied for something greater. The poet Mary Carr wrote that meek is a great stallion at full gallop that will stop at the master's voice. For me, gentleness conjures up um, like, a, like, like, like a guard dog, you know? Very powerful, can protect you, but it's not going to bite me, right? It's, it's, that power is under control. That's gentleness. Power under restraint. A gentle person is not easily provoked by personal, small insults and slights. They're not easily triggered, as so many people are today. A gentle person is the opposite of a bully. An opposite of a bully. There's a, there are all kinds of stories like this. There's an anecdotal one um, about a group of uh, rowdy men who get on a bus and they try to pick a fight with this man sitting in the back of the bus uh, by himself. They insult him. Uh, when, that, that, when that doesn't work, they, they you know, escalate their verbal assaults. They're trying to just go this guy uh, into a fight. Um, the man, however, you know, just, he just sits there, doesn't say anything. And when his stop comes, uh, he stands up. And, and these group of guys realize, like, wow, this guy's pretty big. And he just hands them his business card, and he, and he walks off the bus, and, and he walks away. And the guys look at the, uh, the business card, and it just says very simply, Joe Lewis, boxer. Right, Joe Lewis, for those of you who don't know, uh, was the world heavyweight boxing champion uh, for a dozen years or so. Uh, many consider him the greatest boxer of all time. Right? It was said that he could knock out a horse with one punch. 
Um, and so here's a group of punks, you know, trying to pick a fight with him, but he ignored those personal insults. That's power under control, right? I mean, he could have easily, if he wanted to, but he was gentle. He, he held the power, and he didn't unleash it for personal, right? And I think the story of Jesus is precisely this form of gentleness. A small baby born in a couple, to a couple of insignificant peasants in a nondescript town somehow manages to escape the powerful Herod and the claws of his empire and shows up later only to appear to suffer what appears to be more humiliating death on a cross. And yet somehow that death conquered death and brought life. At every point in the story of Jesus, he could have exerted power for himself. He could have unleashed his fury. Yet he began his ministry by submitting himself to the baptism of John. He could have satisfied his hunger in the wilderness with the word, but he submitted himself to the will of God instead. Instead of impressing the rich and the powerful, he called fishermen and outcasts to follow him instead. Instead of leading armies on a white stallion, he leads children, the blind, the foreigners, the outcasts, the despised, and the forgotten into Jerusalem on a donkey. He could have called down legions of angels to do battle for him, and rightly so, but he quietly chose to be arrested instead. He could have escaped suffering, but instead he willingly chose the cross. And at his trial, instead of fighting back, he remained silent. His anger was under control. His entire life was about submitting to the will of God. That's gentleness. That, that's humbleness. And Jesus said, this is the way he described himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart or humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I am gentle. And we are, we are to imitate him. We also are to be Gentle. But gentle does not mean weak. I want to be very clear on that. He was strong and angry enough to overturn tables and chase people out of the temple when he saw that they were you know, abusing the poor. And yet at the same time, he was tender enough that young children flocked to him. He was fearless enough to command storms to be still, but humble enough to wash his disciples' feet. He was courageous enough to challenge the religious status quo with blistering attacks, but he was also able to shed a tear at the gravesite of his friend. He is gentle, but he's not a pushover. He was powerful and could be angry at the right time, at the right people, in the right measure. He did not use that power for himself. He knew when to get angry and with whom, those who would desecrate God's temple, those who took advantage of the weak and vulnerable. That's the gentle Jesus. Not the pastel-colored, soft Jesus. Power under restraint and control. One of my favorite verses from the Bible comes from Psalm 18.35, where the psalmist writes, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me. Right? It's this image of, of God, this, this great warrior, uh, with the shield and, and the right hand, the powerful hand of God, you know, protecting him. And then the surprise, and your gentleness made me great. 
Right? You expect, and your spear of wrath made, no, it's your gentleness made me great. Do you know this God? It is not God's wrath that brings me to kneel in terror. It is God's kindness that leads me to repentance. It is surely God's goodness that will follow me all the days of my life. And it is God's gentleness that makes me great. It is the gentleness of God that led Jesus to the cross. And it's the cross that makes me great because by it, by it, I am saved and redeemed and adopted and declared a child of God, a son of the King Most High, a daughter of the Great and Holy One of Israel. Think about it this way. Suppose your toddler is playing at a playground and falls down and bangs her head and gets hurt. What are you going to do? You're going to pick up that child. And if you're a parent, how are you going to pick up that child? How would you characterize the way you would pick up the child? Would you just like grab her arm, just drag her through the playground? You would pick up the child gently. Right? You would pick up the child Gently. In order to pick up a child gently, you have to have strength enough to do it. Right? I failed twice uh, this week to, to carry something gently. I had to bring the uh, Christmas tree from the basement to the floor, and like I was just dragging it, my, and my wife had helped me, and then I take a file cabinet down to the basement, and I banged it against the wall, just as she said, don't bang it against the wall, right? Because I lack strength. I didn't have the strength to carry these things gently. If you're going to carry something gently, you need strength. And the bigger the thing, the heavier the brokenness of what you're carrying, the stronger you have to be. Gentleness is not a weakness. It requires enormous strength. And only God can carry the whole world gently because only God is strong enough. That's the gentleness of God that makes me great. Well, after listening to the fruit of the Spirit, um, Paul gives us this application about gentleness. It's interesting because after listening to the fruit of the Spirit, the one that he really gets right at is gentleness. Verse 6-1, right? It says, uh, we ought to do this in a spirit of gentleness. So it's what we might call this this ministry of restoration that Paul urges us to do in a spirit of gentleness. He says if someone is caught in a transgression, a, a false step, that is, uh, and you catch them, right? So it could mean that um, they were sort of surprised that they fell into this transgression or you kind of caught them uh, in this transgression, that they're somehow overtaken by surprise by, by this incident. Those of you who are spiritual, that is, those of you who are uh, bearing the fruit and in the spirit, are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Uh, to, to restore someone, it's this word for amending fishing nets. It's the word that was used to, uh, when you like dislocate a bone or something, to set it, right? So to restore is to, to bring back to its original condition. Um, and so think about that. The goal when someone has transgressed is restoration. To be the way it was before. And we do that, or we can only do that, in a spirit of gentleness, right? So this doesn't mean 
So you've got to be careful here. Don't think this means, oh, I've got to be gentle, so I've got to be very soft. I've got to be, you know, not say anything that might upset them. I'm going to be, you know, wishy-washy about the sin or things. No, that's not what it's talking about. You have to confront the transgression, the injustice, whatever it may be. But you do, you do so in a gentle spirit. You don't do it in a moment of uncontrolled anger and indignation at some personal failure or a personal affront to you. You do so in a spirit of gentleness for the purpose of restoration. Right? You know, I was thinking, imagine a child who comes over to your house and you just, you just repainted your bedroom a, a nice, clean white, and this child comes and, and grabs a, a permanent purple marker and just writes on your beautiful new white wall. What are you going to do? You're going to get angry, <laughs> right? But what's, what are you going to do? Depending on whether that child is two or whether that child is ten, there will be a different measure of anger. Depending on whether that child is a child of your best friend that you've just invited over for dinner or that's your own child, there will be a different level of anger, right? And if that child means anything to you, the anger, if you... It, step back and have a chance to think about it. It's not just to punish and to humiliate and to get your, right? The idea is going to be to restore that relationship, right? And part of it is to say, no, that's not what we do and all of that, but it's, the idea is to restore that relationship. The goal is not punishment. It's not pity. It's not judgment. It's restoration. Discipleship and discipline, you know, it's, it's about restoration. It's about bringing people back to where they belong. The writer George Eliot wrote, When death, the great reconciler, has come, it is never our tenderness that we repent of, but our severity. I think she's right. That's why Paul immediately warns us to be careful that we also are not tempted in these situations because it's very easy to see when someone has been caught in a transgression to think that you are better and that somehow because you've not fallen into that particular transgression that you can kind of, you know, judge them. It's easy to stand afar with the Pharisees and thank God that you are not like those other sinners and that you go to church and tithe and you pray and you're a good Christian all the while. The one who can only pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the one who goes away forgiven and justified. We see again that this fruit is for the community. It's for the community. It's about personal responsibility, certainly. We should cultivate a spirit of personal gentleness, of restraining our own power and anger. But it is exercised in mutual accountability. Paul says both bear one another's burdens and bear your own burden. He's not, making, he's not contradicting himself. He's saying, you know, we have our own burdens that we have to carry. We're responsible for what we have to carry. But he says, you also are responsible for carrying the burdens of others. And notice he does not say, you carry the burdens of others. Right, that would mean that you know, I'm, I'm better than you, I'm stronger than you, so here, let me condescendingly help you because you're weak. That's not what he says. He says, bear one another's burdens. It's a mutual bearing of one another's burdens. 
mutual help. We all need help. You know, it's, I think of like soldiers who are marching and, and one of the guys falls down because the, the backpack's too heavy and some of the other guys kind of help him up and care, help to carry. Something, something like that. You've you got your own backpack to carry, but they're part of your, you know, platoon or what, right? They're part of your group. And so you, so you want to help and, and carry that together. That's the spirit of gentleness. Uh, let me close with this. I want to, I know it's uh, about gentleness, but one of the things that really struck me in thinking about this uh, this week, um, and, and maybe it struck you too as, as you heard the scripture reading today, there, there's such an emphasis Paul places here on the spirit. I don't know if you caught that. Repeatedly, you heard, you heard the word spirit in the, in the reading. Not just the fruit of the spirit, but the spirit is so involved in this passage and in the life of the Christian community. Uh, in fact, if you read the whole letter to the Galatians, earlier in the letter, Paul had written about receiving the Spirit of God at our conversion and the need to complete our faith in the Spirit, that the Spirit, who is, the Spirit is who has been promised <clears throat> and whom the prophets look forward to in, in God's uh, plan of salvation, that the Spirit enables us to become the children of God by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father, And in the reading today, Paul urges us to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, and to carry on a ministry of restoration in a a, a spirit of gentleness, right? So just again and again, this this sense of living in community in the Spirit of God. And it makes sense, right, that we can only bear the fruit of the Spirit if we are in the Spirit and living in the Spirit and in keeping in step with the Spirit. Uh, It's something that we don't produce. It's what the Spirit produces in us as we continue to remain in the Spirit as we work out our salvation in community. Um, And so we have to keep on walking, to keep on being led, to keep on living, to keep on keeping step with the Spirit. And only as we continue to do that can we bear the fruit of gentleness and any of these other um, fruit of the Spirit. Um, and, that, and that's hard. That's hard, remaining in the spirit. Um, I remember a number of years ago, there was a, an okay movie um, called The Next Three Days uh, starring um, Russell Crowe and Liam Neeson, I think. Um, and in it, uh, it's, it's a movie about um, Crowe's character. His wife has been uh, accused of murder. And so she's, she's in prison. They go through sort of the you know, lengthy appeal process. It all fails. His wife's uh, mental state is deteriorating, and so Russell Crowe's character decides he's gonna. The only thing he can do is to break her out of prison, and so he's trying to figure out, you know, how do I get her out of prison? And so he meets with uh, Liam Neeson's character, who's written a bestseller about how to escape from prison. He's he's done it seven times, and so he's asking like, well, what do I do? How do I, you know, how do I get her out? And um, during the conversation, um, when you know he realizes this guy's done this like uh, seven times, says, "Why did you do it that many times?" Um, Liam Neeson says this. He says, escaping is easy. The hard part is staying free. The hard part is staying free. And in fact, you find out later that you know, he, he's back in prison because he, he couldn't stand living with the fear of someone's going to just you know, grab him, you know, come through his bedroom doors and, and, and grab him. Um, and, and I thought, you know, that, that's so true. It's so easy in some ways um, to be free, right? Christ has set us free. And yet it's so easy 
to go back to our old ways, to our old patterns of sin, to our old ways of living, to go back to, the, to where we've been and where we've come from. The entire letter to the Galatians is really about um, how do we live in this freedom that Christ has made possible for us? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we, stay, how do we stay free in the Spirit so that we can continue to bear fruit? How do we keep on walking with the Spirit? And I've, I've been thinking about that. And, um, you know, as you know, that's, that's the basic idea behind what we're trying to do uh, with this church and this ministry, that we have been called to encourage one another, that we've been called alongside to walk in step with one another, even as the Spirit of God is walking with us, right? Paul says here, you know, walk in step with the Spirit, who is the one who has been called alongside, the paraclete. And we are to encourage that we also are called along to walk with one another in step. I think there are many ways that we can do that, obviously. But I think maybe the first step we ought to think about is that we ask ourselves daily, in our daily walk, in our daily living, in our daily circumstances, with the people around me, what might the Spirit be trying to tell me right now or today? I think, I think that's the question we, we need to ask to be mindful of the Spirit by asking, what's the Spirit of God trying to teach me here? Where is the Spirit going? And how do I stay in step with the Spirit? Um, what, you know, if something unexpected in your life happens, or you, you come up across some obstacle or difficulty, or, or you meet someone that you didn't expect to meet, you know, Maybe the Spirit is trying to tell you something. And maybe we can think about, is this an opportunity for some ministry? Is, is the Spirit of God trying to speak something into my life? Um, <clears throat> you know, when my wife banged her head the other day, um, and she, you know, she had to stay in the house for nine days with um, concussion uh, symptoms, uh, someone commented to her, maybe God is telling you to get some rest. You know, that, that's good theology. That's the way sometimes the Spirit speaks. Now, that may not seem very gentle, banging your head. Um, But the Spirit teaches us through the gentle words of a friend. Um, Where is the Spirit now? What might the Spirit be trying to teach me today? Um, Last weekend, um, I officiated a wedding uh, for a couple who I was introduced to uh, by some, some mutual friends, um, well, from people in our church. And despite reminders to this couple, uh, they forgot to bring their marriage license to the wedding. So I joked with them that, you know, we're going to have to do this all over again next weekend. Um, but instead of that, two days later, um, they live in the city, so they had to take the train down um, to bring the license so that I could sign it. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, this is it's just so inconvenient, right? I was so tired because, you know, the, the wedding was Saturday, and then Sunday I had to go up to Queens for a, wedding, uh, for a funeral uh, very late at night. And so, it, you know, it was right after Thanksgiving. So, you know, I was driving all over the place, and I was tired, and it, it was Monday, my day off, you know. And, and so they're coming down, and I thought, um, oh, this is inconvenient, not just for me, but for them too. Like, I mean, they had to take the day off from work and they're going to travel all this way just to get a 
signature on it. I was thinking, part of me was thinking, just fake my signature because no one's going to look at it anyway, you know. But, but you know, the guy's a lawyer, so you know, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't make that suggestion. Um, so, um, so that was my first thought. Then I, th- then I wondered, like, what might the spirit be trying to be uh, teaching me, um, you know? And I'm not sure, but I saw it as an opportunity to. Maybe there's another conversation we need to have. Maybe um, there's something more the Spirit needs to teach, teach me or them here. And so I invited them to lunch you know, when they came down. And so maybe you know, um, there was something that needed to be taught. You know, either I've got to teach them something or maybe they have something that they need to share with me that God was trying to, to share, uh, teach me. So I pick them up at the train station and I see that they brought a box of uh, Krispy Kreme donuts so I knew that's what God was trying to share with me. So I was like, good, good. Um, but as we continued our conversation over lunch, it was clear to me that they had you know, just more questions about uh, the married life. And you know, I could see that they were really encouraged by having a conversation with my wife because in a lot of our counseling sessions, uh, she didn't get to participate. And so to hear sort of some of her perspectives uh, on the married life, and, and how great it is to be married to someone like me. And um, so I got to then not just talk about the marriage, but then we also got to talk about the ministry. I mean, he had a lot of questions about, about the church and things like that. Uh, and so we, we had this just really a nice uh, conversation. And, you know, when I typically officiate marriages uh, for people outside of our congregation, I, I don't usually uh, stay in touch with them. I usually, you know, they just, I just kind of just lose touch. Um, but this is a couple that I thought, you know, I, I hope I can continue to stay in touch with. Like, I really like them, and I want to just continue to have these kinds of uh, conversations. I thought, you know, this lunch meeting, uh, this, this, the forgetfulness, you know, was an opportunity to continue the conversation, and maybe we'll keep the door open so that we can have an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, and I, I tell you this, um, because there was nothing like earth shattering. There was no voice. Um, there was no deep spiritual insight that I learned. Well, actually, I guess I'm telling you this. So there was some spiritual insight that I, I got out of it. Um, but the story for me, it's, it's the start of the story. Uh, and maybe in the years to come, I can tell you the end to this story. Maybe something wonderful will happen. Uh, but for me, this is what walking the spirit looks like. It's just asking the question, you know, what's the spirit doing? How might this inconvenience, how might this person that's in my life right now, right? How, how might I bear their burdens? And maybe God is trying to help me accept some burden carrying from them. Because right? sometimes it's hard for you, I know, some of you, your personality. It's hard for you to receive help. What's the spirit doing? How can I walk in step with what the Spirit is doing here? And for me, I realize, you know, usually it's just paying attention to the people right in front of my nose. It's just paying a little extra attention. It's just extending a hand of welcome, hospitality, a cup of coffee. And it's just having a conversation in a spirit of gentleness to restore people to a right relationship with themselves, with you, with the community, and with God. The ministry of restoration in a spirit of gentleness is using the powers that God has given me to walk with people back to God and back to their communities. 
That's our task. That's what the Spirit is doing. And that's my invitation to you. To walk in step with the Spirit. And to exercise the ministry of restoration in a spirit of gentleness. Let's pray together. God, we, we, we recognize that we live in a world where um, those who are strong and aggressive uh, get ahead in life. And sometimes it's hard to, to be gentle, to restrain our anger and our power. Um, and for some of us, uh, we need to exercise more anger at the right time um, to be more gentle in all of its meanings. So God, would you help us to walk in your spirit, to pay attention to the people and to the circumstances around us, to see how we might bear and be born with the burdens around us. Help us to restore people in a spirit of gentleness. Help us to be gentle, even as you are gentle. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I want to invite all of you to the Lord's table. Oh, my bad. Thank you for that gentle reminder. Um, We have the uh, right hand of fellowship today. I forgot. Um, David, uh, EJ, you guys want to come on up? David, and I'm a sinner. Thank you. I guess it's not that type of meeting. Um, how, we be- how we came to the church and how we became Christians. All right. I did not grow up in a church-going house. My parents are not churchgoers, but my father's side is historically Christian, which is odd. Um, I've been told, not from him, but from other people, that my great-great-grandfather was the first Presbyterian Korean minister, like in Korea. Korea. Take it for what it's worth. Um, but my grandfather, religiously devout, um, always a deacon or a leader in a church and such growing up, but they never took us to church. My dad immigrated in the 60s and was supposedly on the track to be a seminarian, or at least that's what the family wanted, and that didn't happen. He studied business, became an accountant. Um, and the problem with that for him and his tremendous sense of integrity was you're doing the books for a bunch of people that run businesses and are devout Christians, go to church every Sunday. There's a lot of disconnect. So he had that issue and didn't want to go to church because the problem with church for him was the people there. Didn't have a problem with the religion. He found God in the Old Testament. He loved the scriptures and is a historian by nature. 
is writing his third or fourth book. But because of that, we, we didn't go to church growing up. So when I started going to a Friday night Bible study with a friend of mine at a Korean church in Maryland where I grew up, after a couple weeks of that, on my bed some random day was a Bible, my first Bible, and I know my dad left it there. Now, I didn't ask him why I was there. I didn't know if it was just, hey, I didn't know if you had a Bible. I took it as, you should know what you're getting into. You should read this before you start going. So in my head, as a 15-year-old idealist, I shouldn't be going to Sunday service until I finish the Bible cover to cover. That was my thinking at the time. But lo and behold, I went to college, became a Christian in college. I didn't know I became a Christian. It wasn't an altar call. It wasn't a do this prayer and now you're a Christian. I started going to Redeemer in New York while I was an undergrad. And more and more, it just made more and more sense and more of my life was just going to the faith. Which was odd also because I went to college looking for a wife. Um, I didn't find my wife there. Um, And Francis will probably tell you I might have hit on him a couple times also just to double up my chances. But um, I did not find a wife in college. I found God. But I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that until a couple years into going to Redeemer, I started thinking, should I be taking the sacraments? And I am not a baptized Christian. And over there, Pastor Keller wasn't saying, if you were a baptized Christian, come and you know, take the bread and the wine. I forgot what the verbiage was. But one time I ran into him after service. And I said, uh, Pastor Keller, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, can I take the sacraments? I'm not a baptized Christian. He said, is Jesus your personal savior? And I'm like, Yes. Is that a known fact? Is that public? Like, you come here, but do you come here and go home and no one knows you're a Christian? I'm like, no, I'm involved with the campus ministry at school and I'm in a small group, whatever. He's like, you're, you're perfectly fine to take it at our church. Other churches might not care, or might care, but while you're here, sure, great. So I thought I was a Christian. And other people might not have known it, my other people did. Didn't do the ritual of being a baptized Christian until much later, in my 20s. I joined a church in Virginia when I moved back to Maryland. It was called KOPC, which became Open Door. And I became a member at John Josh Church um, and was baptized there in my mid to late 20s. We came to this church almost the same way. Um, I would say that uh, I met her and uh, it was Providence. I told her I wanted to go to college to find a wife. We didn't get married till I was 35. Um, And at some point, I accepted the fact that I may not get married. I am not going to get married if it's the wrong person, if I'm, I I don't need to be married just to be married. Um, So after a few years of accepting I'm going to be single and and such, and as a single professional looking for various churches, bouncing around churches, serving where I could, uh, going through any number of churches and plants and such like that, I'm going to church in Virginia from Baltimore about an hour and a half drive. And I have to tell you, most of you, well, maybe not you young kids, but there's no perfect church. And I forgot who it was in my Christian history. Someone had told me, if there is a perfect church, it's no longer perfect as soon as you start going there. (laughs) And he didn't mean mean me personally. He meant, like, it's the people. We're imperfect, and the church is not supposed to be... um, Perfect. It's a, uh, if you think of a hospital, people that are sick go to hospitals. It's not all you know, 100% well people. So uh, we're all works in progress, is what he was telling me. And I joined Open Door because one of the leaders there 
after I was telling him, yeah, you know what, like, I don't get much out of church. Like, I don't like Pastor John's sermons, but I come and I hang out and, like, we have fun. Like, we go and have lunch. He's like, well, what are you coming for? He's like, well, you know, I'm used to getting fed. I'm used to getting fed really well. I went to Redeemer in New York City, and it was a layup. And I remember trying to plant a church in Baltimore, and the pastor there said, Redeemer, ex-Redeemerites make the worst parishioners. You got, you got fed, you got overfed, and you just come and you have too high expectations. Church, church isn't perfect. And he says, are you coming here for you, or are you coming here to glorify God? And you can do that anywhere. Come on Sunday. You're supposed to hear, be here to glorify God. And that's when I realized it doesn't matter if you go down, down the street. It doesn't matter if you go an hour and a half away. It's not for you. It's for him. And he hooked me into membership and, and baptism and such. So he was a good salesman in that respect. But that perspective was the right perspective. Um, we came here. Uh, we've been to a couple of churches and such. We have kids. I'm here because I married a Jersey girl. I'm, I grew up in Maryland. Um, but I never expected to be married. After about 29, 30, 31, I figured I'm just going to be single. And we started dating in Labor Day of 2008. Um, and our relationship and our ver- voyage here is the same as my Christian voyage. We were looking for church or wedding venues before we were engaged, and that was probably my fault. I knew I was going to propose. I had ordered a ring, and she didn't know, but we were on a timetable, and we needed... So we started looking at ho- hotels before she had a ring. She's like, what are we doing? Why are we talking to these people? Um, so I have this kind of pre-commitment. We've, this has been our church. We've been here for four years. I think it's four years now, since Elliot was two. He's six now. He's turning seven in February, on and off with our schedule. But you guys have been our church. You guys just haven't known it yet. And that's our history, right? Like, she was going to be my wife. She didn't know it yet. Um, And so in that regard, we're just, we're happy to be here. We're happy to finally get this, like, the formal, you know, membership plaque and such that we're going to get. Um, and we're, we're thrilled that you guys are taking us in as well to make Grace Play just a little less perfect. Hi, I'm EJ. Um, I'm not as funny as my husband. Um, there will not be as many jokes. Um, so he wanted to go over why we started coming to this church, but um, I just wanted to share before I start that um, one of the reasons why we continue to come here and continue to, you know, even though our schedule is not always perfect, is just yesterday Elliot asked me, Mommy, when we go to, when we die, do we go to heaven? I said, yes, Elliot, we go to heaven. And yesterday my Elliot went to the cemetery with me, and he asked, when we go to heaven, are we going to meet dad, your, your dad, grandpa? And I said, absolutely, Elliot. So I think there's something in this church that's teaching my child to believe that when we die, we go to heaven. So that's one of the reasons why we continue to come here. So I'll start with that, and I'll tell you how I became a Christian. So um, just like David, I grew up in a household where my parents were not believers. Um, We moved to the States when I was 10, um, and we started going to church because that's what everybody did, and my dad's friend said, you have to go to church to meet other Koreans and to make friends. So we started going to church, and it it was a very 
conservative Baptist church, and <clears throat> the church broke up many times because of political reasons, many fights, and it became a very small church at one point. And my parents stopped going because they didn't like what was go- happening at church and all the changes. So my sister and I started going to church by ourselves for many, many years through middle school and high school. And I think somewhere along the line, I became a believer. And I remember having this conversation with my youth pastor asking me, was I a believer? Do I accept Jesus Christ into my life? And at that point, I, I said yes, but I think in hindsight, I think I didn't truly understand what that meant to be a Christian. Um, going to church was very easy. Um, it's just a routine that I did on a weekly basis, and I thought being a good Christian meant going to church, dressing in a dress because we weren't allowed to wear pants, um, participating in Sunday you know, worship service, and I played the violin for many, many years, and that's what I believed. And it wasn't until college when I started going to a very, very, on the opposite scale, church where it was very challenging. It was, you know, put, to, put your hands in the air, you know, pray really loud, and I went to church thinking, what is wrong with these people? Why are they praying out loud? loud? And why are we clapping? Why are we putting our hands in the air? Because that's not how I grew up. And during my freshman year of college, I was challenged. Um, you know, many people I met asked me if I was Christian, why I became a Christian, and how I lived every day to be a Christian. And they challenged me. And during that year, I think I grew, and I finally understood what it meant to be a Christian, which is to, you know, not to trust myself in doing everything I wanted to do, but to trust in God. And it was after my freshman year, my dad passed away. Um, it was a really hard time. Um, <clears throat> I was very angry. I was very sad. Um, and I needed to be strong for my mom, my sister. And it took a, I think it took me several years to finally accept that this is what had happened. And this was God's way of trying to show me that he still loved me despite what had happened. And the failures I, you know, committed in the relationship I had or the failures that people showed me through different things. Um, Finally, it took several years, but finally I understood that no matter what, it wasn't my plan but it was God's plan, and at the end, he had a path for me. And, you know, it wasn't until um, med school I met my husband. And, um, you know, by working on this testimony, I sat down many times thinking about, you know, what am I going to write? How am I going to write this testimony? And then after writing multiple drafts, I said, you know, it's not how perfect my testimony is going to sound, and it's not how perfect my testimony is going to look on paper but it's how God worked in my heart um, and how he's going to create a path for me and David and for my children. And um, I'm really thankful that he um, continued to show me his path and continue to love me despite my failures. Um, and I hope that I can be an example to my children um, that I love Jesus and that he is the ultimate leader in our family. And it's not me and it's not David. 
um, that we can continue to share our faith with other people around us. Thank you.